History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Eric Dank, one of your two senior interview editors for the Georgetown Public Policy Review for the 2018-2019 school year. Today on the podcast, we're really lucky to have Professor Sean O'Brien. Professor O'Brien is adjunct faculty at the Moore Court School, where he teaches speech writing for public policy, a great class for any of you who are still looking for an elective. He has a variety of professional experiences, including as a comedian with Second City Theater in Chicago, as chief of staff for two members of Congress, as a foreign policy professional at the Pentagon, Midwest political director for President Obama, and as speechwriter for Vice President Joe Biden. Before we get to our conversation with Professor O'Brien, a few housekeeping notes for you. We're really excited for the new year and plan to have some great content for you all throughout the year. The new theme music you're hearing is courtesy of a friend of mine from undergrad, Russell Lawrence, also affectionately known as DJ Little C-SPAN. You can find his SoundCloud page in the show notes, and we're really grateful to him for letting us use his work. We plan to do a show about once a week this year, so be sure to subscribe and keep up with all the latest Georgetown Public Policy Review content. We're available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and the GPPR website, which is worth a click for all the other great content we have on there. There are some great articles from the summer on topics like Russian interference with the power grid, the political economy of state and local tax deductions, and an article titled The Lack of LGBTQ Data Collection, the first in a new series we have called Invisible in Data. Uh, And there's some other articles that our staff put together. They're all really great, and I highly recommend them. If you have any ideas or suggestions regarding guests you'd like to hear or topics maybe you'd like to hear us discuss, please feel free to reach out and email us at interview editor at gppreview.com. That's interview editor at gppreview.com. And without further ado, my conversation with Professor O'Brien. Let's do it. All right. We're happy to have Professor Sean O'Brien here. I already gave you his introduction, but uh, thank you for for joining me today. Um, I guess the big question that we wanted to ask and sort of will be an overarching theme for today is what makes a good speech? Sure. Um, well, thanks, Eric, for having me on. Um, I think a good speech is one that actually communicates a message to an audience that they will remember. And pretty simple and straightforward, but I'd say about 95% of the speeches out there uh, completely fail in that, including quite a lot of the ones that I've written or delivered. So it is not a knock on, on uh, anyone in general. It's just um, when you are writing a speech, giving a speech, producing it, the thing that you tend to forget is who's sitting in front of me and what's the one thing I want them to take away? Usually walk into it with, I have all sorts of things that I want to say, uh, and, and you know, there's a million different messages that I'm going to try to get across. And in the end, you've given a long speech and people walk away. They were either entertained or not, but they don't remember anything. Sure. So most of our listeners will be people going for an advanced policy degree, kind of a policy nerd sort of thing. God bless you. And... Uh, a lot of us sort of are made uncomfortable by the fact that some of the speeches we hear, the sound, sound bites we hear on the news, 
sort of dumbs down policy issues, at least in our mind. Mm-hmm. You know, we like the intricacy and everything. So how do you, as a speechwriter, try to balance persuasion and sort of getting to the policy precision and, and I guess, telling telling it like it is? Sure. Um, and how do, you, how do you balance that? Well, quite a lot of it is you're a translator. Um, that's one of the biggest things that you do as a speechwriter is that you have to understand enough of the policy level to get... Um, the intricacies involved and the nuances, but you also have to be able to maintain that distance and say, okay, if I were to pick up my phone and, you know, call a relative and explain this to them, uh, would I use the language that you just used to me with a lot of different acronyms, a lot of different, you know, terms that you're assuming, or would I find a way to explain this in plain English? Uh, So one way to look at that would be dumbing it down, but sometimes it really is actually a matter of revealing uh, and this gets uncomfortable, but you're exposing the uh, the points that the policy people don't actually have fully. You get a bunch of policy people in a room. They'll all agree on a certain acronym, a certain program, what they want to push. And you say, well, what does that really mean? I guarantee you they're going to disagree. And so now you've actually revealed that when you start speaking in plain English, um, that maybe the policy people are not quite as smart as they think they are as well. So I, I actually I advocate learning speech writing or just generally learning how to, to translate that uh, for everybody because even if you never do any public speaking or writing, it helps you figure out what you actually know and what you don't know about policy. I mean, one of the most valuable exercises we had done in your class uh, last fall was to take something that we considered ourselves an expert in and present it to a hypothetical nephew or niece's fourth mm-hmm. or fifth grade class. And to talk about something that you know really, really well in that way was, was super valuable. So I've, I definitely have gained a greater appreciation for, for that sort of thing. Sure. Um, if you think about it, um, some of the best speeches that have ever been given are at what would be considered a first or second grade reading level. Um, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That only has two, uh, two syllable words in it, um, and it's 17 words. Uh, I have a dream. Um, it's all one syllable type of things. Keep hope alive. Um, and so the idea is, you know, speaking in plain language and direct language is not necessarily dumbing down a very complex issue. It's actually getting to the core of the one thing you want the audience to remember. So you talked a little bit about knowing your audience. Uh, I was interested in knowing who you're writing for uh, and trying to make sure that you write for the person who's going to be speaking Mm -hmm. to sound authentic so that it sounds like something they would be saying and not something that you've written. How do you how do you sort of uh, get into uh, and channel the person that you you write for? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of the main things is to look at the things that they've already said. Um, everybody has certain verbal tics and certain things that move them. Uh, a famous quote or famous, you know, uh, individuals that they respect, uh, some way that they have of phrasing an argument. Um, and you have to have an understanding of that, remain true to it, or else it's going to clang false. Um, other speechwriters have talked about kind of, you know, getting inside people's head. I've, I've heard prominent writers of both parties featured in stories where they use the phrase, I don't know where he ends and I begin. Well, I have never experienced that. I, I don't know what that is. But I do know <laughs> that I can sense ahead of time, um, I need to get this speech approved. Uh, we have a limited amount of time here. 
and the person I'm writing for is going to want to see X, Y, and Z on the first page, and so I'm going to put it there. Uh, and that person likes to close with a certain line. So I'm going to put that line in there, not just because I think they like it, but as a signal to them, this is where the speech ends. So they don't have kind of awkward trailing at the end. Um, so you really try to, it's almost like you're, uh, David Litt used a phrase that I really liked. He said, you're actually a personal trainer more than anything else. You know, you're just trying to get them to be their best and give them the tools that they need to move forward. Like, you have to include an Irish poem. Absolutely. <laughs> if you're writing for Joseph Robinette Biden, you need to have an Irish poet and you need to be able to kind of pull them out. Uh, you know, uh, I now know a lot of them by heart. <laughs> so one of the other uh, one of the other things that I was interested in is the or I guess one of my big takeaways from the class was this concept of stickiness uh, mm, from yeah. the Heath Brother book it's that great we book. talked yeah. about. Um, what how would you sort of distill the concept of stickiness and what would be sort of like your spark notes version mm -hmm. of, of the big takeaways of that? Um, I'm glad, glad you brought up the book because I think that is a real good thing, not just for individuals, you know, interested in speech writing, but also people, you know, it, it's a business school text and, and well-deserved. Uh, it's called Made to Stick by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. And what it does is it basically just kind of breaks things down, you know, like we were talking about with the policy issues all sorts of different, uh, you know, ethereal ideas out there. Um, but the way it's going to stick in somebody's mind is uh, you make it simple, you make it concrete, uh, you make it memorable in different ways. You know, you really kind of break it down into the core of uh, the point. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to kind of make that stick in your head. And in advertising world, they love to use that type of thing. Sometimes they've been successful and sometimes they're not. But it's also a great concept for speeches. How do you sort of evaluate the current uh, sort of environment of speeches? Are the speeches mm -hmm. that are being made today particularly good? Do you think that there are? We are not living in a golden age of speech making. Um, I think that's a safe uh, statement to make. I think um, it's, and you know, some would blame that on you know the. Uh, uh, the soundbite world, the media world, and all that. But the fact is, um, the speeches of the 19th century were actually not so great either. They were, you know, very long. They would go on for two hours. It was, you know, rhetoric was a, a spectator sport. Um, and uh, then radio comes along. People like FDR learned to master that uh, with very conversational speeches that did include their own form of so sound bites. You know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We still remember that. Um, JFK took that to the next level with television, um, and you know, the, with the the advent of the internet, it's kind of um, it's also broken things down to the point where people want to share just the memorable pieces of a speech. Um, that said, though, I think the same general concepts always apply. Uh, you know, it has to resonate with the audience, and it has to be memorable. Um, what you're dealing with now is a lot of different audiences. Um, so, you know, the audience right in front of you, the audience that's being reported through the press, the audience that you reach directly, um, president has taken it in a, a different level with, uh, tweets, you know, like he actually has his own, uh, way of reaching people directly. Um, he is the most undisciplined tweeter. Uh, you know, other people have used tweets effectively to, send what they think is a great line and a line that's been written well and everything. And then 
but he sends just whatever is on his mind in the morning, whether it's misspelled, you know, out of uh, context or whatever, but it seems to take hold. So there's, you got to pay attention to that. Why does that work? Uh, and maybe it comes down to this concept of authenticity. I, what I'm waiting for is to see some great speakers kind of translate that authenticity into a disciplined, solid speech. Um, you know, Barack Obama in 2004 at the convention launched onto the national stage with just such a speech. Um, you know, John McCain gave a memorable floor speech on the Senate uh, right before the, uh, the health care vote, um, you know, and um, or the, the vote to proceed with the health care bill. So uh, I think there have been some good speeches made, um, but I think uh, the market is wide open and waiting for somebody to actually, you know, give a good memorable bang up speech that actually gets through to a broader audience, not just the people right in front of them. Do you have any any uh, guesses or suspicions of who such a person might be? How do you sort of evaluate your your sort of big names in, in politics? I think um, on the Republican side, I think Marco Rubio is un, under uh, underappreciated as a speaker. Um, just if you look at what he did in the Florida State House, um, he was, uh, I, and I think maybe you could explain some of the strange early missteps of the Jeb Bush campaign in that they knew how good a speaker Rubio was, and they were perpetually paranoid about being overshadowed by him. What Rubio did was he threw away his strength, and he just went down into the gutter with Trump, and, you know, so he stopped being a good orator. I think, uh, my guess is he takes another run at it, and you're going to see some really good speeches out of him. Um, on the Democratic side, um, you know, Cory Booker was always uh, a pretty solid speaker, um, and I think he can get across. I don't like uh, Elizabeth Warren as a speaker. I like her as a person, but um, her, her style uh, is very professorial. It is very academic, um, and, uh, you know, d that depends on your audience, and it might play perfectly well right here at McCourt, but, um, you know, in Ames, Iowa, I'm not sure it's going to be very successful. I have not seen that particular transcendent speaker uh, on either side that I actually think is prepared to blow things out of the water. Um, I also, uh, from the international perspective, I'm a little surprised that I'm not seeing anybody take up the mantle um, because it does seem like there's such a vacuum waiting for somebody to kind of be you know, the rhetorical leader of the free world, essentially. Um, but the English are just as bad as we are right now in terms of charisma and speaking, um, you know, and uh, I think, you know, within Latin America, um, there is uh, quite a bit of turmoil in terms of, you know, inspirational direction and all of that. Um, I think Pope Francis is a good speaker. Sure. And um, I think he has actually turned the church in his own way through the power of words, not just through fiat. Um, and, you know, he, he, he is very persuasive and he builds an argument and he's actually gotten a lot of people on his side on, uh, you know, thorny subjects. Um, so I don't know. Field's wide open, though. So, so I kind of wanted to uh, transition a little bit here and talk. Sure about your vast variety of jobs mm -hmm. that you've had. We've talked a lot about sort of the more recent uh, history of, yeah. of uh, speech writing, but uh, to talk to everything from being a comedian in Chicago to working on the Hill, uh, what are sort of 
what are how would you sort of compare and contrast those different professional experiences particularly the mm-hmm. comparison i'm interested in uh, overarching advice that you've found whether it's telling a joke in chicago right. or working on policy on the hill uh, i think um i mean my general advice would be to pursue hobbies because you don't know where they're going to end up assisting you in your professional life. Uh, when I was living in Chicago, I was an IT contractor, um, and you know, if you want, if you squint hard, you could find the seeds of my current profession in that because I was the guy who could translate between tech and, and corporate speak. You know, so I was already doing a little bit of my own speech writing there. Um, but the reality was, it was just a good living at a good time um, in a market that's kind of cratered since then. What I did in the evening, though, to enjoy myself was I would do a lot of improv and I'd do a lot of comedy. And that ended up helping me a lot in my congressional career later. Um, for one thing, it makes you a more uh, comfortable speaker. Um, once you've been up on stage in front of a bunch of strangers and who demand that you be funny with a completely random uh, suggestion, uh, you're, it's a little less intimidating to be thrown into a meeting with the rural letter carriers of Salisbury, North Carolina. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, great. Your suggestion is talk about the mail. We can right. do this. Um, and so, you know, just in terms of personal comfort and everything like that, I think any type of performance is great for anybody to, you know, I think everybody on campus should be, you know, doing improv or acapella or theater, what have you, something where you actually have to be in front of people and mm-hmm. talking. Um, but then in terms of the basics of what makes a good joke and what makes a good speech, there's quite a lot of uh, overlap. There's the rule of threes, uh, which mm-hmm. plays, you know, something that happens once is a random occurrence. Something that happens twice is a coincidence. It sets up it for it to happen the third time as the punchline. Um, anything after that is overkilled. Don't ever tell something a fourth time. Um, and so that's true, you know, within comedy, you see the rule of threes all the time. Um, and uh, within a speech, uh, rule of threes, if you position different phrasings uh, within three, it just it gives a rhythm to the speech and it motivates people uh, in a way. Um, you actually look back at Winston Churchill's stuff. He actually used to speak in fours, but we now translate back to what he says, and we remember right, it in right. threes. You know, he, he says, all we have to offer, uh, all I have to offer is, is blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And so that's blood, sweat, and tears now. So uh, I think the rule of threes is important. The other thing, too, uh, with both comedy and speeches is uh, if they don't get it the first time, don't repeat yourself. It's very possible that you weren't funny or that you actually hit a sour note, and repeating yourself again only makes it worse. Doubling down is not necessarily the... Just don't double down. If the crowd didn't react to your line, the speech, or a joke, you know... Three people in a room didn't laugh at your joke. Maybe it wasn't a very good joke, or maybe it was offensive or something in some way. And it's just best to just cruise on and pretend you didn't even tell a joke. Um, Same thing with a speech. Just keep the rhythm going and keep talking. So you mentioned that there's some seeds of how you got into your your current career. But I really enjoy your story about how you started to be the speechwriter guy. Oh, sure. Congressman Emanuel's office. Well, so I, w- I was working in Rahm Emanuel's office um, as kind of the front desk guy. Um, and, um, you know, this is when I'd sort of abruptly changed careers at age 30 and, and became an intern on Capitol Hill and then eventually moved my way into a sort of paid gig. Um, and 
Uh, he had an insatiable appetite for uh, what we call one minutes. These are like speeches where members are recognized for one minute to talk about whatever they want on the House floor. Um, and he would want something written based on whatever was in the news that morning. And it was really grinding down his legislative staff. Um, and so I, you know, decided to start trying to help out where I could. And, you know, I threw together some speeches and they were hit or, hit or miss, but, you know, some of them did all right. I, I had some pretty good policy points that I was making. Um, and then at one point, there was a lobbying reform bill um, that was on the floor. And the reason for it was uh, that uh, this was in 2006. It was uh, the Republican House was in danger. Uh, and one of the chief attack points that the Democrats were using was that there was a culture of cronyism and corruption. Uh, and so they brought out this lobbying reform bill, supposedly to, you know, change how lobbyists interact with um, members of Congress and, you know, to make Republicans look like they were on the side of angels on this. And uh, somebody in the office is reading over the bill and says, wow, this looks like a love letter to lobbyists. Uh, so I took that concept. I busted out my old copy of uh, Norton's anthology of poetry. And, and uh, you know, I wrote a one-minute speech based on uh, Elizabeth ba Barrett Browning's um, uh, How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. So this is Dear, Dear K Street, How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. I love thee to the depths of thy oil wells, for thou shalt have $14.5 to drill them. You, you know, you get the idea. Gimmick. Total gimmick. Um, but uh, I, you know, I sent that in almost as a joke to the, the legislative director. And I come into the office and he's like, Rom loves it. Don't touch it. You like he's doing your speech. And so he goes down and he ends up delivering it verbatim. And it got picked up on CNN five times. It got uh, printed in the Chicago Tribune in its fullness, like like the whole speech, at which point I sent an email to my old English professor at Northwestern saying, how many uh, poems have you had published in the Chicago Tribune? Uh, so, but the, the lesson I took from that, and, and then it kind of, you know, set me up to be Rom's guy in terms of, you know, the morning speeches and, all that. It, you know, it got me noticed. And so the lesson I took from that is that you know, comedy is just another way of getting a point across. Uh, you know, like we said at the outset of our conversation, you're trying to make the audience remember one thing. Um, comedy is a tool in your tool bag, and it helps to be funny. Or it also helps to kind of have the same mental wavelength as the person you're writing for. Uh, I am a sarcastic jerk, so is Rahm Emanuel. So we line up. It worked out. Uh, right. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, but anything like that you never know what's actually going to help contribute to your career in some way so um i recommend you know goofing off and finding hobbies as much as you can i think that's a great one it's, yeah uh well i'll be sure to put a link to the youtube video of of oh, Ron sure, yeah. that in, our, <laughs> in our show notes so that if anybody's interested they can they can go check that out so i guess i would be interested more in the career arc so you sort of started mm -hmm. Getting to write the one-minute speeches for yeah, I started Ron. writing one-minute speeches, and then um, my I had an eight-year career on Capitol Hill, um, and it wasn't all speech writing. Um, it was um, I became uh, legislative director for Heath Schuler um, from uh, Western North Carolina, um, and a very conservative part of the country. Uh, it's currently represented by Mark Meadows, who is the mm -hmm. you know head of the Freedom Caucus, and such. Um, 
but uh, but it also at the time included Asheville, which is a very liberal area, and so it was a, it was an odd political mix. And I got to be his legislative director at a time when uh, nobody knew how to uh, legislate to appeal to that part of the world. You know, it was not really Republican or Democratic. It was just fiercely independent. Um, and that was a great political lesson. I did that for two and a half years, and I really enjoyed it. I'm proud to say that Heath got reelected by large margins every time, so he seemed to do something right. Um, but uh, And then I became um, the chief of staff for Congressman Mike Quigley uh, from Chicago. He took Rom's old seat, so it was a bit of a homecoming for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and for three years, I got to be Mike's chief, uh, doing all that was involved there. Um, the whole time, I was actually writing speeches for them, though. Um, and I wrote speeches for Bill Foster later when I became his chief of staff. I always wanted to be a full-time speechwriter because that was just the part of the job that got my juices flowing the mm-hmm. most. Um, and uh, so I was part of the Obama campaign in 2012. I ran the Midwest uh, political operation. Um, and then when I came back to town, uh, I started getting my resume out among the different uh, administration folks. And as luck would have it, uh, my resume was sent over to uh, Vice President Biden's folks, um, and they gave me a chance to put in a test speech along with, a, I think, a bunch of other people. It was sort of a, a call, and uh, and I fortunately nailed it, and so I got a chance to work with him uh, for three great years uh, before moving on to the Pentagon and doing a lot of speeches over there as well. I actually really enjoyed... Uh your stories from the Pentagon too, and mm-hmm. the comparison and the comparison from the Pentagon, the military yeah. sort of defense uh, culture and attitude compared right. to uh, your sort of lower level Congress and yeah. things like that. That the professionalism is completely. It's an extremely professional building. It really is. Um, And I'm still doing some work over there as well. So, like, I can assess that it's not really, you know, dependent on a particular administration. It is a – the people who are working at those desks, uh, particularly the the kind of mid-level military officers, they're there for a reason. They're there because they did well as, you know, junior grade lieutenants, and then they they get the opportunity – uh, to do what kind of seems like fairly unglamorous work, driving a cubicle uh, somewhere and answering different questions about, uh, you know, uh, uh, different policy points. But the fact is they're on their stuff. And there is a culture within the military that actually contributes well to the stuff that I talk about with speech writing, which is, uh, you know, bottom line up front. Um, so get your point across right away. Um, and there's also the idea of commander's intent of like, what exactly is the one thing that I want you to remember from all of these different steps? So a lot of that meshed well with how I think about speech writing. Um, of course, there were other parts that I certainly missed. There was no Irish poetry sure. over in the Pentagon. <laughs> sure. uh, you know, and um, in fact, actually, a lot of uh, the speeches ended up going into very dry territory, too. So, um, you know, I think we missed some opportunities to get points across um, by sticking too heavily to, you know, the uh, the weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, I think it is a very interesting atmosphere to, to get involved in. And, and I actually think that uh, speech writing is one of those things that uh, military officers should learn um, they end up having to do quite a lot of speeches on time and writing for senior officers who do quite a lot of speeches as well. So um, that's one of the things I actually really enjoyed, uh, you know, teaching in the class at McCourt, and I'm looking forward to this fall as well, is uh, having 
uh, mid-career military folks in there uh, that I can talk with. Yeah, we had a solid number in our, did, our yeah. class last fall. Um, do you have spots left in the, are there, is there seats available? As of now, I believe there's one seat available. In the if class. anybody wants that one seat yeah. and are inspired, feel free to, to sign up. I guess uh, a question that we're trying to get going for all of our guests this sure. year, uh, sort of stealing this from Ezra Klein's podcast, he always mm-hmm. asks his guests, what would be three books that you'd recommend? It can be on whatever topic you want, on an old book that you read a long time ago, stuff you've read recently, right. just three books you recommend, um, and you'll be our, our first installment of this ongoing question throughout the year. All right. Well, I like it. Um, well, you know, we mentioned the Made to Stick book, um, and, you know, certainly uh, that relates to the course that I teach, but I also think it's just generally useful uh, to people. So I would, I would certainly mention that. Um, there are a few others involved in the course that I won't mention because they're kind of specific to that, but I think just in general for anybody to kind of get under reading under their belt, uh, my favorite work of fiction is All the King's Men. Um, and you know, it's, a it's been, uh, portrayed and kind of remade in movies as a Huey Long, uh, mm-hmm. you know, biopic, but actually what's so interesting about it is the central character is essentially the, uh, the chief of staff, mm-hmm. uh, the guy who ends up having to run around and, and it's a very well structured plot. I just, uh, it's just my favorite, uh, political read. Um, and then I think, um, in terms of uh, my favorite sort of book regarding the history, uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg uh, by Gary Wills, um, I think is also a really good read. Um, I like all of Gary Wills's stuff, but uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg kind of captured a lot of what happened at the time, uh, why that speech was particularly important in terms of the, the turning point in the country, um, and also just in terms of you know, the progression of the United States. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty quick read as well. So I would put that on your bedside table with all the copious amount of free time that I know that grad right. students have to read other things. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I guess I wanted to give you the opportunity to leave with what you're up to, uh, sure. what's, what's going on in your life, anything that you would be interested in, maybe people want to take the class or anything else that mm-hmm. sort of little, little opportunity for a little PR. For no, yourself. no, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I am, um, uh, I will be teaching in the fall, um, and uh, maybe me looking to teach in the spring as well. I need to discuss that uh, either at the, the graduate or undergrad level um, because I really do enjoy um, having that opportunity to speak, uh, and I may look for opportunities to speak on campus as well. So I'll let you know. Um, I do uh, get around town a bit. Um, I'm uh, my Twitter handle is at hope underscore history, um, and uh, that's taken from. Um, uh, the vice president's favorite favorite poem was uh, something by uh, Seamus Haney. Uh, it was a Irish poet passed away fairly recently. Uh, and it was called "The Cure at Troy," um, and he um, the Cure at Troy was written essentially regarding the Good Friday Accords, um, the idea that uh, Ireland was waking up from a nightmare of history and all of that. But uh, um, but it was sort of using an allegory of um, of the Trojan War. Um, and uh, the quote goes along the lines of, history says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Um, and it really is 
you know, it's one of those points where you look for those points where hope and history can rhyme. Um, and, you know, it's about nailing that possibility. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about working with Vice President Biden about was he was always looking for those chances um, to kind of move history along in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but yeah, so I love hearing myself talk and I also love uh, helping people write. Um, and so I hope to get a chance to work with some more people on campus and uh, appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us. It was really fun conversation um and happy to have you back on uh again if any time time. so absolutely thank you very much all right thank you again to Professor O'Brien for coming in and chatting with us. Uh, We're really excited again for the new year and please hit the subscribe button and tell your friends. Thanks again for listening.